Hey, everybody. It's Glenn Thrush with Politico's Off Message Podcast. This week's guest is Tim Ryan, the guy who just lost the leadership race uh, to Nancy Pelosi uh, among uh, House Democrats. He's a congressman from Ohio, the Youngstown, Akron area. Uh, when I'd covered the House back in the, you know, in the early 1920s, <laughs> no, when uh, probably a few years ago when Ryan was a, was a fairly young, newly elected congressman, uh, you'd see him walking in the halls. And first of all, the guy is, I don't know, six foot three, six foot four. He's about the size of a small refrigerator. Uh, and he stalks through the hallways. He has got this incredibly intense look. It turns out he used to be uh, a star high school quarterback. He's a really gung-ho athlete. He, he's just a very intimidating guy. And we went in, in to interview him in his office in the Longworth uh, House office building. And he comes in after a house vote. Doesn't talk to us, brushes right past Bridget and I, sits himself down in his seat, turns his back to us, picks up the phone and starts talking with a Fox affiliate, I think back in Youngstown. And he is essentially, uh, he was incredibly fired up. I don't, he wasn't yelling at the guy, but he was definitely uh, trying to trying to explain to this guy why uh, capitalism doesn't work for anybody. So listening to Tim Ryan explain in very forceful terms why he thinks, well, capitalism is great, but it doesn't necessarily work for old people or poor people. And he was really getting worked up. So he slams down the phone, spins around in his chair, and he's like, okay, guys, how much time you want? And I'm like, wow, this is going to really suck. <laughs> then I realized, and one of the really interesting part parts of this guy's biography is that he is into mindfulness meditation, which is something that I have dabbled with unsuccessfully. Uh, we start talking about this and this big, intimidating, tough guy who was just shouting into the phone slumps back into his chair and just starts talking about the impact that it's had on his life. And, and it just totally changed the tenor of the conversation. Um, so I think this guy, more than any Democrat I've spoken with since the election, really gets the dynamic of Trump and how Democrats need to confront it. Ryan unabashedly talks about how Trump's messaging, uh, his appeal to the anger and frustration and fears of white working class voters and even uh, white voters of, of uh, higher income range um, needs to be addressed in a more succinct and visceral level. Very, very important. He thinks the Democrats really uh, not just need to message, but to feel the feelings that this group of people have. Uh, and they're a substantial group of people. And, and his sense is uh, that Democrats have fallen out of touch with, with this group. And the interesting thing about Ryan is he's not advocating uh, exclusion. He's not saying that the politics of identity or the politics, racial politics in, in the Democratic Party, uh, African-Americans and Latinos need to be put off to the side. He thinks they need to be incorporated into this larger message. Ryan's got the tone right. That's, and I want you to listen to sort of the tone that Ryan has. Uh, which I think if Democrats are going to come back, that they're going to they should they should pay some attention to nothing academic in the way that this guy talks about people's real life struggles, even though he himself is a is a, a very articulate guy uh, and a trained attorney and apparently a pretty good writer. This was a real wake up call for me. I think this is somebody uh, worth keeping your eye on uh, in both parties. And now for our usual bit of business, uh, please follow us on iTunes and rate us. Uh, and now you can uh, Catch us on really every single platform out there. Spotify, I tend to listen to Spotify pretty much all the time. Uh, so I'll occasionally just throw the podcast on or other podcasts on through Spotify. And I have to say, I didn't used to like the iPhone podcast app, but they've kind of cleaned it up. And I've been uh, using that quite a bit uh, as well. And as usual, if you've got comments or questions, please feel free to send them to gthrush uh, at Politico. Dot com. Remember, we are entering the holiday season. I am looking for positive reinforcement from you people, but I, I can deal with some constructive criticism as well. Without any further ado, here's Tim Ryan. So, Congressman, I was just listen, overhearing you talk. Was that a Fox affiliate you were phoning yes. into? Yeah. Uh, I like the part where you're explaining capitalism to them. <laughs> <laughs> you're getting really fired up there. Yeah, you know. Um, so first thing I want to ask you about is um, have, uh, you're a meditation guy, right? Yeah. Because you don't, I have to say, just kind of like sitting here, it was fascinating, sitting here listening to you talk to this guy for 10 minutes, you're getting pretty 
pretty wound up, man. How did you get into meditation? And like, is it because of you're kind of a type A person? Uh, I had a priest teach me uh, centering prayer, which is a basic Catholic meditation right, right out of high school. I went to Catholic school my whole life. And uh, he taught me, and that was the beginning of a journey I went on with flirting and trying out all kinds of different types of meditation. And it, I just felt better. I felt more focused. Yeah, I, here I am, 43, so right. I started doing this when I was you know, 18, 19, just on and off. Really? And uh, I would do it for one day and feel really good and then not do it for a year. I'd do it for two, three days in a row and be like, oh, my God, this is so helpful. It's an amazing thing. Yeah, and then not do it for two years. <laughs> so right. in 08, my stress level was getting really high. Um, had been down here for a few years and doing a lot of campaigning in Ohio. Yeah. We, were, I, we got into the majority, so then I was on the Appropriations Committee, and I went on a—so uh, President Obama got elected in 08. I went on a five-day retreat. Uh, is this John Kabat-Zinn? John Kabat-Zinn's retreat. Total, I should, the best book with the worst title ever, Total Catastrophe Living. Full Catastrophe Full Living. Full Catastrophe Living. Yeah. Sorry, man. Yeah. Carried yeah. around on a campaign plane, I did. Yeah. Did you really? Oh, absolutely. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I love that book. Um, he just he just came out again after yeah. twenty five years, I think. Um, and I like I like the title. I know it's a tough title to like deal with, but it's like the whole idea is like, look, you have to be present for the ups and the downs, but you got to be in the present moment, right? You know. And I think my athletic background really helped me understand. You were a high the, school quarterback, and you were recruited. You had a knee issue, right? Yeah, was, I went to Youngstown State when Jim Trestle was the coach there wow. before he went to Ohio State. So he was my quarterback coach and my head coach. And now he's back. We got him back to be president of Youngstown State. But, um, I, you know, I read Phil Jackson's book, Sacred Hoops, and he talked a lot about his personal meditation practice and that what he was teaching to Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. And so I was even kind of like understanding what he was doing even while I was growing up watching Michael Jordan and Scottie right. Pippen watch these guys. So it really resonated with me um, that that this technique is very powerful. And you watch Kobe Bryant, you watch Scottie Pippen, you watch right. Michael Jordan, you go, whoa, I mean, like, how can I do that in my life? When you say sort of stress level, you do seem like a really type A kind of guy. You kind of, I would almost use the term gung-ho to kind of use like an old-time <laughs> term, right? So you realized that's pretty heavy self-awareness there to realize that you were the kind of person who might overheat, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, what was it like? I mean, were there moments, was there any particular moment in your life where you're like, I cannot survive at this particular stress level? Uh, I wasn't there, but I knew I was getting there. Yeah. Like I was getting to the point where like, okay, this is going to be overwhelming. I'm, I am, I'm not burnt out. I'm going to be burnt out. Right. And I'm going to be probably burnt out in a couple of years. And so I'll be at that time I was 35. I'm like, I'm going to be under 40 and be like a burnt out old <laughs> congressman. <laughs> and it's like not on the agenda. Like that's not how I planned it. So, yeah. Can you give me some examples of burnt out congressmen? No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we have several around. <laughs> yeah. um, no, I'm serious. Give me names. No. Um, so do, do you, and, and have you maintained that? I know you wrote about this. Have you maintained that practice? Do you do it in a regular way? Is it important to do it in a regular way? Yeah. The most important thing is to do it every day if you can, even for five or ten minutes. So, yeah. And actually in the last two weeks I was doing it more than I have ever done it in my life. And people would say, well, you're most busy right. running this campaign and, and all of that. And I just was, I was doing it all the time because I just had to. And like, where would you do it? And to, just explain to people who haven't, who aren't familiar with the practice, what it is. So, you, you know, your mind will take you into the past or into the future. And each of those can bring about a, a lot of distraction, obviously, and a lot of anxiety because you're worried about something that you could have said differently if you're a parent. You know, right. you're like, why did I say it yep. that way to my kid? Yep. Um, but in all our interactions, so then you, you regret things in the past or you anticipate bad things potentially happening in the future. But you're missing the only real moment there is, and right. that's the present moment. Right. So you have to be present and you so the practice of mindfulness meditation for example and a lot of other mantra based meditations really how do you let those thoughts go of the past and the future and keep coming back to the present moment because that's your life right you notice that when you have kids like you're especially younger kids 
I have a baby that's two and a half years old. I just sit there and I stare and I'm like, oh my God, like, right. this is such an amazing thing. He's like learning how to talk moment by moment. He's right. learning new things. And, and I'm more present with him than I am probably in any other aspect of my life. But you can train your mind to do that. Which well, I have thirteen-year-old twins, so we are way in the in the future with those guys. So it's very hard to be yeah. present with them. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. you know, you think like this is my baby girl here, who's now thirteen, and oh my god, right. and, you know, you're going to blink like on a commercial and you're walking her down the aisle. I you mean, that's it. just how it's going to be. And and at that moment, you're going to say, um, "I wish I was paying more attention." So you close yeah. your so you so it's a breathing practice typically, where it comes in through the nose, you breathe it out, and you sort of count it, right? Yeah, you can count. There's different techniques, but that's one. You can just, you sit and you feel your butt on the seat. You feel your feet on the ground. You try to sit up straight um, and you feel your breath coming in through your nose and you feel like your belly. Are you breathing with your belly, breathing with your lungs? Are you in your throat? Like it's not a deep breath at all. Don't do anything about it. Just notice it. And that begins training your mind to be in the present moment. It's like your mind is a ship at sea getting knocked around, but your breath is an anchor keeping your ship in one place. So you just kind of hang with your breath, notice it, your mind will go off. Right. Then you, I mean, when you first start doing it, your mind can go off for 30 minutes. And then you have to reel it right, reel right. It right back. Yeah, but over time, then it goes off in the past or the future for 20 minutes. Like, you'll have an argument with someone in your head. Oh, yeah. You win them all. That's the good part about it. <laughs> <laughs> I lose them all. <laughs> in your mind, like, I got my final point in. Right, right. Um, and and you, you start to notice, like, I'm having this conversation in my head. Because I finally shut my devices off and I shut my TV off and I'm just here. What's going on in my mind? And you see how your mind works. So it's really becoming more aware of your thoughts. So this is what's interesting. You know, when when we talk, we're reporters, we talk to politicians, we stand you up in front of the microphones and ask you, are you planning to run again? All that stuff. What's interesting about this, and and I want to move you in this direction a little bit, is what it's like from a personal experience being in the middle of this kind of thing. What is it like? Because uh, you obviously made the decision to run against uh, sp- uh, former Speaker Pelosi. Um, and you did it, I thought, in a pretty respectful way, probably a little more respectfully than she did it to you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, got, I got you with that one, right? Um, but uh, what was it like? You mentioned that you, had to, you were doing this more in the last two weeks and you've done it. What's it like to kind of put yourself out there? Explain to it without getting like, too intimate. But like, what was it that you were trying to banish from your mind? Not banish from your mind. What was it that you were trying to process? What does it feel like to be in the middle of, you know, it's not a big maelstrom, but it's a pretty significant event. Just kind of walk through for me what it was personally like to go through this. My focus for my mind was, and I stole this from Pete Carroll, who I met one time, the football coach for the Seahawks, and they have a very awareness-based yep. regime for their team. What's the truth? You know, I just kept every, when I was, you know, practicing mindfulness and when I was trying to be in the moment, what's the truth? Just tell the truth as you see it. And I would say, I'm telling the truth as I see it. And you may disagree with me. And the truth was, I love Nancy Pelosi. The truth was, I respect Nancy Pelosi. The truth was, she was a mentor for me. You know, all true. Right. Also true, my, as I see it, we need to move on. So I just, I just kept... You know, people say, stay on message, stay on message, you know, stay message discipline, all that. I was just telling the truth. Right. And it was very, it was very liberating. It was very powerful for me as an experience to go through that because it's changed my life. Like it was so, it felt so good no matter what, like even getting up in front of 200 of my colleagues in a, in a pretty dramatic scene. Yeah. And it was just like, I'm just going to tell the truth. Well, and and I think that's what kept me going. Was it personally? I, I, I don't want to get too touchy feely, and then we'll get on to actual politics. We'll, this is fun, though. We'll, it is. It's better, right? <laughs> yeah. This is why this is better than actual the crap I do for my day job, right? <laughs> the, uh, but but was it personally painful for you in terms of processing stuff to hear her say negative things about you and have people kind of attack you? No. Why? No. I just I was so focused on. It didn't matter. You know, it was like, and I, again, I credit this to the practice. It was like, you're, you're like Teflon, you know, it's just, you, you're not sticky. You know, you don't, it can't stick to you unless you let it stick to you. And it really is. I mean, it's just like, you can focus on what people are saying about right. you, or you can focus on the truth and what you're trying to do. And, and so 
like I never felt like offended. I never felt like, you know, I, not at all. And yeah. I was just like, but I was in the zone. I was like for two and a half weeks, I was like in the zone. And so it you know, sounds like a fairly exhilarating. So this sounds like a, I don't, again, this sounds like a fairly exhilarating personal experience for you. It was the, it was the best professional experience of my life. Like and you where, lost. I, where I learned the most. Yeah. Yeah. That's well, not the way it's supposed to work in Trump's America. You're not supposed to win, man. <laughs> you know, it's, it, I, I, I don't try, I try not to give too many sports analogies, but when I, when I played quarterback, um, when you won a game and you watched the film, you always focused on what you did right and right. how great it was that you won. Right. When you lose, I remember watching films and it's like, Oh, that that one pass, God, right. it got picked off. It got, you you focus on okay, but you learn more from losing because right. you're you're just it's it's a tougher experience. But the fine line is not is how can you learn from losing? And Lord knows I've done enough of that in my life. But how can you learn from losing without imbibing the negativity? And and again, that's about being in the moment versus living in the past. Right? Yeah, extract yeah. the lesson. And this is what you try to teach your, your kids. You know, you extract the lesson and then let it go. It's in the past now. But did, you, did you have ADD when you were a kid? Just out of curiosity. Probably a little bit. I mean, yeah. we, we, no one had ADD when I was growing up. Yeah, no one didn't even exist. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> yeah, no, you're not yeah. paying attention. Timmy, Timmy, Timmy. I remember my mom growing up calling my name 50,000 times. <laughs> I think that's a signal for maybe some attention issues. <laughs> uh, with me, I, when I was a kid, and I'm a little bit older than you. Yeah, I, They didn't call it ADD. They called it a wooden spoon on your butt. Uh, the um, One more, one more uh, little digression on this, and we'll get to the nasty politics. Uh, not really. Um, so uh, I just actually did a, a trip with my kids to um, Ironton and Portsmouth in the South and Huntington, West Virginia, where they were doing, my kids were doing a little documentary on the opiate stuff. And we went to wow. a residential treatment facility and talked with people who were on methadone. Um, this is, the mindfulness stuff has become, uh, in, in the treatment center we went in, the mindful, it's a component, it's a bit of a toolkit. Yeah. Talk a little bit about uh, uh, um, what's going on with the, I just also finished this great book, Dreamland by Sam Quinones, which is totally on my mind now about the way the opiate stuff kind of feeds into the politics of this region and the despair. Mm -hmm. And we've seen death rates increase. We have some news out today. What's going on in Ohio? What is going on with, with people and the sense of hopelessness and how, uh, how is it really impacting both the politics and culture of this place? I'd say it's a great, great question. Um, I think Ohio, Youngstown, these different towns, a lot of them are tale of two cities. You know, we have in Youngstown and Akron, for example, in Cleveland, you have these burgeoning little tech incubators, and there's like business software. And our incubator in Youngstown was rated the number one uh, university-affiliated business incubator in the world oh. you know in the world there's three four hundred people you know making close to 60 grand on average there we have the america makes the additive manufacturing institute oh president obama wants to do 45 of these that's in downtown youngstown so much innovation happening and cool stuff with youngstown state and all this and every community has a little bit of that and then there's the other side of that which is not just the other side it's more it's probably 70 or 80 percent yeah. of of our our people are dealing with really tough tough issues and we are dealing with kind of the back end of the industrial age as we knew it and and communities in many of them in ohio and across the country are dealing with that so you have generational poverty um you have massive public health issues whether it's heroin uh, infant mortality, depression, uh, total, total depression, yeah. lack of hope. Yeah. And, and I've gotten more convinced really over the past two weeks that the truth is for Ohio is we need a massive rebuilding of the country. We need to put people back to work, not, not just for economic reasons, but for psychological reasons, because there's no hope and people you know, need a motive we need to rebuild them that the motive the motivation should be we are blessed to live in the united states of america we are wealthier than any country that ever existed on right. god's green earth right let's act like it let's rebuild this country and let's put our people back to work i say on the trade issue like okay i know you know i have a bachelor's degree i have a law degree like i know what comparative advantage is right. i understand globalization i understand the economics of it 
I understand that trade in the aggregate is beneficial, right? I yep. get it. But you can't convince people who have seen their communities wiped out that it's good. Yep. It's bad for them and for me and for our community. So what's the plan? Right. And in the absence of a plan, you have biases or, or you have uh, enemies. So in the absence of having something positive, people will seize on an adversary. And, you know, it may be perfectly rational. China, NAFTA, even though, it, even though we've seen studies that say that NAFTA has had some beneficial effects. It all becomes, and, and this really, what you're talking about here is the gap between kind of the hyper-rational democratic coastal party and what people are really feeling, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's their pocketbook. You know, we just went through a whole campaign. No one talked about pensions. But if you would call, if you'd sit in my district office, a, a lot of the calls we get in would be about, you know, retirement insecurity, a pension, how many goes, how many different companies we have in our community that their pension went to the PBGC, you know, the Pension yep. Benefit Guarantee Corporation. So that's a real issue that people are thinking about, but yet no one talked about it. So your case, you know, I, I, as a very young man, <clears throat> worked on the Hill and worked in, in Congress and did casework. So I would mm-hmm. do Medicaid in Brooklyn, New York, and Medicaid casework and people with... And I, and I always found that was the, the thermometer for what was going on in the district. Totally. How is casework... What are you seeing? You, you sort of mentioned that. What are you seeing in terms of casework? And what is your casework barometer tell, thermometer telling you about what's going on? Well, economic insecurity, pensions, unemployment, trade adjustment assistance... Um, you know, we just had the third shift at General Motors in Lordstown, Ohio, uh, you know, uh, get laid off. And then, as I have seen throughout my entire career, you hear that announcement on Monday, 1,200 jobs. On Wednesday, you hear their top supplier laying off 75 jobs. A couple days later, the supplier to the supplier. Cascade. 50 jobs and 25 jobs and all the way down the line. So you just see it cascading and um and those issues are the issues that people call about, and we're not addressing the issues. I mean, I, I, I'm progressive on all the issues, right? But we, we need we need to talk about what the average person, whether you're black, white, brown, gay, straight, uh, man, woman, Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, you want a job, you want rising wages, you want a secure pension. You but, you, want- but you also want to be part of a system, and this gets back to you talking about the capitalism stuff, which is really interesting, uh, hearing you sort of talk about how it works for some and doesn't work for others. Um, but you also want to feel like you're part of a society and a system that's moving in a positive direction. I think that's like, that's, I think that is a factor that people are underestimating. It was a big factor in the Sanders thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and let's talk about Hillary. You supported Hillary in the mm-hmm. primary. And I've, I covered her for a really long time. And I always just found, I, there were, if you go through her program and like listen to her speech granularly, she addressed a lot of things, but she was never able to really put it in terms of a motive message. Mm-hmm. Do we, do, you know, she lost, what, she lose Ohio by 8.5% percentage points? Almost as much as she lost Texas by. Nine, right? Yeah. What, what was wrong with her message? Tell me, because from a policy perspective, I'm sure you were on board with a lot of what she was, she was about. Talk about that gap between what she was granularly proposing and the message. How do you, uh, what did you think of her message in Ohio? It wasn't one that connected. You know, I think there was a lot of effort talking about Trump. You know, he swears in front of kids and he, you know, did this and he did that. All things that, you know, many people find repugnant. But that was her, her conversation was more about talking about Trump. Right. So if you're if you're sitting in Ohio and you're watching TV, you hear her talking about Donald Trump, and then you, the news was the emails and everyone else right. talking about her, right. and so it's like, well, who's who's talking about me, <laughs> right? Well, you know who was talking about him? Donald Trump was talking about him. We're going to make America great again, and you're going to be a part of that, and we're going to solve this problem and that problem, and we're going to, you know, and even if it's bullshit, it was total bullshit, right? I mean, you know, I mean. He's, he's not going to open up the coal mines, you know. He's not going to. He's not going to bring back steel mills. We had steel mills with twenty thousand people right. walking out of there. Those jobs aren't coming back. So you're doing a disservice. And 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 we made the point throughout the election. He has a long, long record of mistreating his workers. Right. Okay. So what happened yesterday? The steel worker in Indiana dealing with 
the worst situation of your life if you're a union president. And we're talking and about the we're talking about the carrier, carrier, carrier the carrier situation. Like yeah. these guys are my buddies. Like right. my some of my best friends are like union leaders from construction trades yep. or steel workers. These are guys I grew up with. And for him to say what he did to that local steelworker union president is absolutely shameful. He tweeted after the guy was on CNN, after the head of the steelworkers was on CNN, he said that he's doing a terrible job. Terrible whatever, right? job. Right. And it's his fault and the union's right. fault that these jobs are all leaving. And to think about what that person in Indiana is dealing with, because I know what they deal with because right. we went through this. Um, with all those families. And all he was trying to do was correct the record about the number of jobs that were saved or not saved. Right. He was just putting forth the actual stats. Right. It wasn't a swipe. You, you're you the president of the United States. You're a billionaire, supposedly. You're going to go smack down a local steelworker union head who's going through the worst time of his professional career and dealing with families who are getting laid off, you know, two weeks before Christmas. Right. Like, that's what you're going to use the bully pulpit for. And I got to tell you, that pisses me off. I mean, that gets me fired up because that that guy didn't do anything wrong, you know. And you're, you're you know, like, you need to be setting up your government. You know, you need to be working on ISIS. You need to be dealing taking with intelligence some, briefings, which right. he's only taken two or right. three, and maybe yeah. read the intelligence briefing so you can be the commander in chief. And to do this is so wrong on so many different levels. And what it does is it just it confirms for me that you know all that laundry list of things we talked about, uh, stiffen workers and yep. waitresses and waiters, and it's like, well, you know, he didn't turn the page. But, but the democratic message is, is too complicated, right? That's what we're not too complicated, but too fragmented, not focused enough on. Well, let me ask you just um, yes, because they, they, hi, yeah, hindsight yes. hindsight's twenty twenty on this stuff. Did you realize during the campaign when they were do, running the anti-Trump stuff that they were failing to assert a positive a positive powerful message? I mean, you know, I don't want a Monday morning quarterback, yeah, yeah. but my my advice consistently was, um, what's America two point look like? You know, take us there. Who are you? Just to, uh, uh, Aaron was was Aaron Pickroll the uh, was Aaron Pickroll involved? It was in Ohio. The, I mean, I was talking to everybody. I mean, so I, you knew the people who were involved in the Clinton campaign. Yeah. They and didn't, then, you know, know they're drinking water out of a fire hose. I mean, it's like yeah. you know. So I did. I, I didn't try to push too hard. Um, but you know, my suggestion was, what's America two point What's a, what's the next iteration of America look like? clean energy that is not just about the environment, but it's about manufacturing. And we have 8,000 component parts to a windmill, gear shifts, hydraulics, steel, concrete. Like, we make that stuff. That's right. what we make. So you frame your your economic America 2.0 vision around we are going to be the, the clean, renewable um, energy uh, of country. This is going to be our thing. This is going to be the next version of America. And it, it, it appeals to people who right. conceptually understand what's going on with climate change and it appeals to the working class guy in Youngstown who wants to go make something right and we can make gear shifts and we can do cement and right. we can do steel and aluminum and da 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 right down the line that's America 2.0 and but everyone he, can participate he, but with But here's it. the issue you know I was around for the selling of the stimulus which I think by the way was the most undersold thing we've ever had like I thought I thought for all the self congratulations the Obama team did, they did an exceedingly poor job of getting any sort of. I mean, the genius of Donald Trump is he saves X number, how many number of jobs he did with Carrier. Mm -hmm. it, it's perhaps a dubious deal. I don't know. I haven't looked at the details, but the Obama folks essentially what they throw seven hundred and fifty billion dollars at this thing and got no political benefit whatsoever mm -hmm. from that because they didn't sell the thing, right? In part, they didn't sell it, and in part, it wasn't big enough. You know, it plugged the holes and that was about it. Right. And we ha we've had this growth and we know, you know, we talk about how many millions of jobs have been created, but it's been mostly under 2%, right. you know, so it hasn't been really robust. And clearly there's a lot of underemployment. It's not just about the unemployment right. number. It's also about the workforce participa participation rate, which is about 63%, which is still not good at all. 40 or 50 year low. Right. right. So it's the, these other stats too are, are, are important to understand, but it wasn't big enough. So a third of it went to states, 
like Ohio, yep. right? And I know John Kasich wants to take credit for plugging the $8 billion hole. It helped he got an $8 billion check from the federal government for the stimulus package. <laughs> um, you know, and, I'll bring uh, that up with John Weaver yeah, the next time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a third of it was to plug the hole. Yeah. Uh, a third of it was tax cuts, which were, that was okay. I mean, people put a little money in people's pockets. Not, not a bad uh, idea. And then a third of it was infrastructure and some other investments that we had to make. Not nearly big enough. So how know? do you feel? Okay, so Trump, I mean, this I'll is... Give the, you an, let me yeah, give you a quick yeah, yeah, example yeah, exactly. on, on the stimulus. So yeah. uh, like local counties would get $3 million to do a road project right. that they, were, they, they had uh, in the works. Well, they just used the $3 million in federal money and didn't use the $3 million that they were going to spend and plug their own little budget hole. So it, it didn't advance the ball down... Uh, down the field like we needed it to so you needed like three or four of those projects right they're gonna they're gonna plug the hole for themselves but then they have three or four and this money got to get out the door and a lot of people thought you know maybe the money should have went to mayors maybe it should have went to local communities as opposed to flow through the states um so you know i mean hindsight's twenty twenty, as i said but clearly i don't it wasn't big enough there was a two two to three trillion dollar hole in the economy and i thought we should have said look we need three trillion dollars Oh, but the but come on, man! The politics of this thing—I covered this. It was a nightmare, and the and the Republicans what would, what, 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 what the would, hell out. What of would Trump do? What, Trump we, would throw out a crazy number, right? Yeah, like that would have been crazy, right? That'd have been insane, right? We, you say, well, look, there's a three trillion dollar hole in the economy. We need three trillion dollars, or the economy's going to collapse. And they say, well, we'll give you two. We'll give you two. You say, okay. <laughs> now you're so one point you, two trillion dollars ahead of where we were with the actual stimulus package so less mr less mr spock and more scotty (laughs) that's one way of putting it that's one way of putting it because yeah because they were very look man the thing about the obamians is they were very pointy-eared like they were very uh you know I, i i agree with you man i thought they did not use a bullhorn on that at all yeah i mean he was still in the honeymoon period yeah he was still very very popular there were a million people out at the capitol i mean again I say this now because I was saying it then. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not Monday morning quarterback in right. this one. We were all saying it needs to be bigger. It needs to be bigger. It needs to be bigger. And this was part of the case I made, you know, to the caucus is like, look, I've been around a little bit here. Yeah. I'm not just I'm not a freshman. I'm not a sophomore member. I've been here 14 years. I was on the appropriations committee in seven, eight, nine, ten when all this stuff was going on. Yep. Dave Obie was the chair of the committee who had been here 40 some years right. and was like the chair of all the different subcommittees right. at least once. You know, I traveled with him. I traveled with Jack Murtha. You know, we went to Iraq. I went to Ireland. I went to Europe with Obi. you know, on a couple, three different trips. And I learned a lot, you know, just by watching and listening. I like told everybody, look, I did what my Catholic school teachers told me to do. Shut up and listen. <laughs> you know, pay attention to what people are saying and to have the privilege of being in their presence. And I just watched and I listened. And I think I've learned a lot from all of that. So what do you think of his, uh, so, uh, you know, his $1 trillion uh, infrastructure bill, which is what I say about his cabinet so far, or what I say about his transition so far is lots of generals, but very few specifics, right? <laughs> <laughs> very good. So he's got like a one. I see, I see why you have consistent work. Thank you. You know, you're good at this. Oh, well, I don't know. It's my good looks. <laughs> the, um, uh, we got this $1 trillion infrastructure package. A lot of it's done with sort of tax credit stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Are you generally amenable to it? Talk that through. I mean, do you think there's do you think this is an opportunity for Democrats to kind of pile on and get something good done? I need to see it. I mean, I really need to see the details because I'm I'm not going to govern by Twitter feeds and that kind of thing. You know, we're going to you know, if this is the public works version of Trump University, uh, it's going to be hard. (laughs) It's going to be hard to support it. Um, But if it's real and it's going to put people back to work, we've got to be very, very serious about it. And I think it needs to have I know it needs to have. You know, the provisions in there like Davis Bacon to where, you know, our friends in the construction trades are going to have a prevailing wage, a wage that's good. Eh, and so gone, on. dead. The whole thing's done. Well, you don't know that. I, I mean, talk about Grover, you know, the one thing the establishment Republican side loves and they're going to push into everything is the Davis Bacon rollback. Right. I mean, that's their big thing. I And I hope that that Trump would hold the line on that. I mean, he, he clearly doesn't mind parting ways with the conservative establishment on some of these things. I think it would be a very smart political move on his part to say, hey, you know, these are the people that helped elect me. Because clearly, um, you know, union households in many of the key states went for Trump. 
you know. So these are these are Trump voters. It, it hurts me to say that. I can't believe that even just came out of my mouth, but it's true. And so I think as he's thinking this through, he I think it would be a very smart move on his part to say we're going to keep Davis Bacon, we're going to keep these union wages in there. If we're going to rebuild the country, people should have a good wage, pension, benefits. And those those you know those friends of ours that are in the unions, when they're working, they're doing well. But isn't he, in a lot of ways, the only Republican in your lifetime and mine that has spoken this language of economic populism? I mean, like, uh, not spoken the language of, I mean, Reagan uh, put words to it, but... Pat Buchanan. Pat Buchanan. But doesn't this guy seem to to get something that a lot of other Republicans and a lot of Democrats don't get? Yeah. That's why he's president. You know, you don't get to be president, you know, because you're dumb. You know, you just don't. I mean, you got to have some... Uh, if it's not just like straight cognitive genius, intuitively, you, you got to be like very, very refined. And he is, I think his, I think his instincts are good. Like I said, I mean, I think he's has this list of a history of treating workers poorly. And then what he did with the steel workers we talked about, um, shows me that, you know, he, he maybe is not concerned as he thinks he is about working class issues and working class families. But he intuitively knows that that that's an issue for people, and he talked right into their heart and their hopes and their dreams and their aspirations with and their fears and, too. And, and well, that was the downside of his campaign. You know, that to me that was that was what was repugnant is he he flirted with the white supremacists, and I know a ton of people who voted for Obama twice. You know, and then voted for Trump. So you can't say they're all racist. Right. You know, and a third, a quarter to a third of his supporters disapproved of him while voting for him. Yeah. Which is a totally un, a totally uncharacteristic phenomenon. Just shows how fed up people are. It's like this guy I don't agree with, but I think he can maybe do a better job. Or I don't even like his character. Yeah. Um, qu- question is, and this is the, the gets to the crux of kind of what your run was about. Full circle. Um, the division now in the Democratic Party, I'm talking to people I know, even in the White House, is do you work with him, walk as far up the line on things like infrastructure as you possibly can until you hit a wall, no pun intended, um, or do you do what Mitch McConnell did and be like, go to hell. Our goal is to get you the hell out of here and not cooperate with you at all. No, I, I think I think you got to try to work with them. I, we need to respect the people of the country. This is a great country, and the magic of America is the people govern, you know, and they picked. And it's a signal to everybody. I think we should all learn from what, why they picked him, what they were feeling, what we did wrong, um, whether you're the Democratic establishment or the Republican establishment. Trump is, a, is, is an entity that's allowing us to reflect on how we have gotten it wrong. And I think we need to we need to work with him. We need to try to work with him. Right. You know, I, I'm not for the Mitch McConnell approach. I think that is so disrespectful to the process and to the people who elect us. Because um, I had a lot of Trump voters vote for me and vote for Trump. You know, there were right. yard signs with Tim Ryan and Donald Trump. You know, I'd like to see pho- uh, photographic uh, we evidence took of, no that photos of that. <laughs> <laughs> Those photos have all been destroyed. I'm calling bullshit. <laughs> um, but do you think do you think Pelosi and the leadership of the party kind of get at that, or is that what your run was about? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, we're gonna. I, no, I don't. I don't think we got it. I don't think we have gotten it since 2010. You know, I think we've played this game of of slicing the electorate up and talking to people. You're a man. You're a woman, you're Catholic, you're Protestant, you're gay, you're straight, right. and you're brown, you're black, you're white, and we're going to just talk to you like that's all you are. And when the fact of the matter is, look, I'm Irish and Italian, right? Okay, I like being Irish and I like being Italian. We right. eat fish on Christmas Eve and we have this big Italian dinner and all this stuff. But I'm a dad, you know? Um, I got kids in school. I need to pay the bills. I have a job, yeah. you know? And so to talk to me like... Yeah, okay, Irish, St. Patty's Day, or Italian, Christmas Eve, fish dinner. Like, that's just a small part of who I am. Yeah, that shaped me and all the rest, but I, I need to feed my family. Right. And so you're talking about all these other things, and I'm I, what's on my mind, and this kind of gets to the awareness, yeah. right? It gets to the mindfulness yeah. piece. It's like, stop and stop thinking about what you're thinking about and and be aware of what 
your constituent is thinking about. But that's also what is on their mind. That's also generational, right? So you have this generation, you know, having covered Hillary for a really long time. You know, I was generational and democratic. Generational and democratic, but Mm -hmm. yes, generational and democratic. And you know, it is a it is an ugly accident of history that the older politicians who are sitting at the top of the totem pole right now are women. There's no two ways two ways about it. So in order for the next generation to get through, you have this older generation that happens to be women that will eventually have to move on. Isn't that isn't that sort of doesn't that, isn't that striking? Well, it's it's, it's a sign of success yeah. in some sense of what we believe in, you know, that equality for all. And I one of the proudest moments of my career was watching all the kids rush up to Speaker Pelosi when she grabbed that gavel. I mean, if you weren't emotional for that, you know, you're not your heart's not beating. Um, and that was beautiful. That was a beautiful day. Um, but here we are, you know, and the lesson of that is if you want to push issues that will help social justice, that will help create an environment of equality for all, you gotta be in the majority. You gotta win elections. And I know people want to talk policy, you know, great. You can talk all you want. Nothing's getting implemented. Right. That I was want, the Hillary thing. They were arguing about the platform argument. They're arguing about the whys and wherefores of stuff. And yeah. they blew the whole thing. And that's fine. But you, you're never going to get there. So what's the game before the game? And that this is the game before the game, you know, and you you've got to play this game and you got to win this game before you can get on the field for the real game, which is implementing the changes that you want. America 2.0, rebuilding the country, whatever the vision is, Medicare for all, Um but you got to play this game first, and we're bad at this game. Who we, do you think's good at it on your side of the ball? <sighs> Apart from you, well, I you know I get it. I, I I get it. I think Joe Biden gets it, um, and I think you know I think there are a number of younger people who who get it. I, the guys I hang around with mostly down here. Uh, who are from Pittsburgh and Boston and Philadelphia? Like they, I think they get it. I think like Tim Walls gets it. Rick Nolan gets it. These guys in these tight races that barely win, they get it. Um, so look to the tight races and not the eighty twenties. Well, one of my provisions for the steering and policy was like a third of this committee should be people who are on who have tight races. <laughs> like why are we? We have everybody on steering and policy that has a seventy five percent voter index. It's like. Where are the guys that got to go run with the stuff we do or Dude, but talk David about? David Pluff told me the middle doesn't really matter anymore. It's not about swing electorate. It's about digging the hole deeper, right? Uh-huh. Good luck with that one. That one Here, here's, here's where we are, you know? And I think there's a, certain, there's a certain arrogance to that. There's a certain disrespect to, like, okay, so these working class people don't matter now? Like, they're not Americans? But that they're... was a decision. Uh, two more questions. I'll let you go because I know you have votes today. Um, by the way, thanks for taking the time. It's been great. Um, the, um, the key maneuver that Hillary Clinton did in the primary was to, in order to win South Carolina and other states, New York, is that she criticized Sanders's message as being too broad and not targeted enough to racial inequality. So Sanders was talking about sort of a broader umbrella inequality, mm-hmm. and Hillary went towards the racial argument. I, I won't go so far as to say it's cynical, because I think she really believes that stuff. Mm-hmm. But was that, is that a mistake? And Sanders's larger umbrella argument sort of got subsumed in all that. Uh, it was a mistake for the general election. Right. You know, and you're not checking those beliefs. You're not, you don't say once you win the primary, oh, I don't believe that anymore. You know, um, forget that. You know, everything I just said. No, it's like, that's part of our platform. Right. But we're talking to everyone now in, in the general election, swing voters, independent voters, moderate Republicans who would be open to a bigger message. And you got to talk about the things that unite people, and that's economics, you know. So you're not just talking to African-Americans. You're not just talking to, you know, Latinos. You're talking to everybody. And so you better have a message that I can take in my district. Someone on the West Coast can take in their district. Someone in rural Mississippi can take in their district. And when you don't have that, it falls apart, you know. And, And you can't say, well, if we only have the most dynamic speaker, leader, the first African-American president, like this brilliant guy at the top of the ticket, we can't win elections. That's not a sustainable model because guess what? He's done. Right. 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 Love Barack Obama, but he's leaving. Yep. And the Clintons are gone and Bidens are gone. 
I think. <laughs> Harry Harry Reid is Harry Reid is is gone. Yeah. So it's like okay, within this tragedy, like I was saying about watching film of of, of sporting events yeah. that you played in and you lost. What's the lesson? The lesson is we need a broad, deep party that is a partner to people in communities. It's it's more about civic engagement than it is about dropping into a district six months out and blowing five million on TV ads. Oh, by the way, millennials don't watch TV, and there's 180,000 millennials on average in each congressional district. Old model. So, okay, well, that raises... Okay, so that my two final questions. It raises... Uh, you want to talk about a Monday morning quarterback question. Uh, if you had it to do all over again, had a time machine and know what you know now, would you endorse Bernie Sanders? Or would you give him a better look? Oh, let me ask you another way. Well, first, to compound question. Would you endorse Bernie Sanders, and do you think Hillary Clinton was a mistake? You know, I have a personal relationship with Hillary and Bill, and, you know, my rule number one in politics for me is, you know, you're loyal. You're loyal right. to your friends. And if they decide to jump, you jump with them. You know, that's just how I go. Yeah. And I've and I've lost races that I've endorsed candidates that, you know, I talked to them and they, they wanted to do it and they helped me. Yep. I help you. I mean, that's just how it goes. And yep. sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't. So there's no question that I would be with them. Gotcha. OK, so the last question is a Youngstown question. Uh, my favorite <laughs> and I know you're not from Youngstown, but it's in your district. And it's in your neighborhood. Uh, my favorite uh, son of Youngstown is Boom Boom Mancini. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? <laughs> the Duke who, I, big, big dramatic moment in my childhood was the Dooku Kim fight. Were you at the fight? No, no I watched, watched it, though. It, yeah. it, was like on, it was on like wow. broadcast television. Have you seen the documentary? No. The Good Son? Oh, you got to watch it. Oh, really? Oh, God. It, uh, Ray goes back. He's a buddy of mine. Yeah. He goes back and he meets with the family. And just total closure of Was this. it 81, 82? It was early 80s. Yeah, I think it was 80, So for people who don't know, it was one of the greatest fights I'd ever seen in my life. He was a, what was he, flyweight or a lightweight? Lightweight. And he was a huge, he was just a, a huge personality. And he fought this Korean fighter. And the guy beat the hell out of him for 12 or 13 rounds. And in the 15th round, Ray just came out of whatever shell he was in mm -hmm. and literally killed the guy. Yeah. He died in the ring. Yeah. And it shattered Ray's life, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a part of him, he never got over it, you know. But that was that was for us. So that fight was at Mollenkopf Stadium in Warren, Ohio. That's where I played all my high school football games. That was my home. That was my hometown field. Really? And I, I just remember growing up, um, you know, it was Ray Mancini was the man, right? And yeah. I remember him going to church. I remember the picture in the paper, it's clear as day, getting communion from Father O'Neill uh, the day after. Like, Dooku Kim had not died yet. He was, he in was, a coma, he was in a, a coma for a few days. Yeah. And Ray was just, you know, he was going to church, and, you know, we're all Catholic, and it was like, this is our guy. And Ray was this, just this little Italian guy, and he was just, he was Boom Boom Mancini, and his dad was Boom Boom. That's right. His dad was a boxer. And so it was just this phenomenal story. And everybody loved Ray. You know, he, he's fighting in Vegas. He's hanging out with Frank. A totally Sinatra. great guy. The best. Yeah. Like he yeah. is when you think of the champ. Right. You think I think of Ray Mancini. He will. If you invite him to something, he goes. He'll sign autographs till everyone gets their autograph signed. I mean, just as classy as a, like he embodies what it means to be a champ. And he was so hurt. And I just remember him coming through that, and he was he was never the same. But it was like we were all kind of going because we were all like rooting him on, yeah, right. And so we all there was like a guilt there for. And everybody. this was a huge moment, by the way, not a moment dissimilar to where we're at now in terms of the. It was the first massive wave in the '70s and early '80s of this deindustrialization stuff. Yeah. So Mancini wasn't just like he wasn't just any boxer. He was the embodiment of you guys fighting back, fighting right? Back, yeah. 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 He was. He was all we had. What's he like now? <laughs> the best. He's so fun. I mean, he's just so classy. Like he'll, like I said, he's just. I see. I saw him in an event. He actually moved back to Youngstown. Yeah. Um. So he's living back there, and you know, if you invite him to a ribbon cutting, he'll show up. Like it's he's that kind of guy, and just as humble as can be, and a real role model. I think you know, no matter how high you go, you can still have a lot of class and and conduct yourself in a way that is about other people. It's not about you. And and. Um, and we've had other boxers come through who have been champs and, and, and Ray would tell them, you know, 
there's a responsibility that comes with this. You know, you got the belt, man. You're the you're the champ. So you need to behave like the champ. Maybe you should talk to Trump. Well, I was, just, you know, funny. <laughs> our, our our mirror neurons were were, were uh, working there because I think it's it's like you're the president. You know, yeah. You you know what? You can smack down a local union guy. Of course you can. You're the president. You're Donald Trump. You're a billionaire. You can smack him, but don't. Okay, uh, uh, this really is the last question. Since you're talking you're, about... You lie. I mean, I'm I just want you... This has a been a, a public display of your character flaws. I, can I just tell you, man? <laughs> ask, ask Bridget. I do this with everybody. Okay. This really is the last question. Okay. And, you, and you're going to stonewall me anyway, so it's useless. Uh, <laughs> speaking of comebacks, will you run for speaker again? I really don't know. You know, I really don't know. People are calling me about governor, you know, and it, I'm I'm not thinking about it in the sense of like I'm trying to make a decision one way or the other. Right. I'm just it's just you know kind of out there in in my mental space. But um, uh, I don't know about running again. Um, it just I, I'm I'm really like liking how how it ended up. As weird as that is, like it, I'm so proud of my staff. Like I, the joke was we're. We're, this is a startup company because we were like, okay, who has the phone numbers for all the members? <laughs> <laughs> and we should say you just moved offices, and it literally looks like a startup. You're, all your pictures are laying in piles yeah. and books, yeah. piles got, of books. I got to show you my Bernie Kosar picture out there. Are you a Bernie Kosar guy? I was. Yeah. So I got my Bernie because we, you know, part of uh, Miami and then Miami mm-hmm. and then the Browns. Miami, right? yeah, but he's yeah. From, from Youngstown. Went and to, wound up with the Jets, which went, is my team. Went to Boardman High School, so he was the local guy. So I wore a Bernie Kosar T-shirt under my pads. When I played, really? like he was my guy. Didn't Bernie go bankrupt? Uh, he's had some financial had some issues. Financial yeah, issues. yeah, made a lot of money. He's a super smart guy, but I think he gave a lot of it away. You know, former players that he played with needed a million bucks or whatever. And he generous guy. Is that true? Yeah, gave a lot of his money away. Wow. And then whatever. I don't know the whole story about it, but um, we have a picture uh, of him and, uh, in the Browns uniform playing. And underneath, it's called the audible because he was like he oh, played yeah. with his brain, you know, more than back in the day when he was just that was his strength uh, to set plays up. Well, you guys always yeah, Brian Sipe. Yeah. Okay. We, we now now we're now. going down rabbit holes, man. All right. <laughs> but anyway, the, the point of the the point of it is the audible, and I like that, and it hangs in my office because you can't be afraid to switch, and this is part of moment right. to moment, right? You like don't be afraid, like you're not stuck right. doing something call an audible and so you know if we had a plan in the office and we got to change it like you got to call an audible well maybe you'll do that with the next speaker's race uh congressman thanks so much for taking time as a blast yeah, it was great thanks and I, I appreciate the whole um bringing the mindfulness piece into the work piece because it is i think it's vital it's right? very very vital and you look at you know ray dalio you look at pete carroll you know you look at these real high performers it's it's part and parcel to their life you know like ray dalio says you know i'm it's like a ninja i'm out there like a ninja i feel like i'm so focused and and um so i i think it can be very helpful for us on capitol hill or any high stress environment to at least try to explore some contemplative practice whether it's religious or not religious to help yourself stay connected to the truth as you see it well that's a good note to end on 